Hey, Adam, we got Kim on the line. What do you want to ask her? What would you recommend being the first, you know, in-house employee hire that we should look at? Um, how are you handling management? Third party for now. Okay. So, I mean, if you get to a place where you want to get away from third party, I think definitely like regional manager type person to get that to get that piece. And then also it depends on what part of it do you love to do? What part of it does your business partner like to do? What part of your wives love to do? Um, Cause that makes a big difference too. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. And I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. We've got two amazing people on the line with us today. We got Kim Radiker Bays and Adam Mitchell. So, as is tradition, you know, we we set the first half of the, the show, reserve it for our experienced investor. So, Kim, welcome to this show. I'm excited to hear about your story. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. So do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us an idea of where you came from and how you got into multifamily. Sure. So I was a um, finance major in school. And after I graduated, I actually lived in Cleveland for a little bit mm-hmm. um, and worked for a bank and then a couple other organizations in the retirement plan industry. So that's kind of where I got my start after college was in retirement plans, designing them and administering them, coming up with creative ways to apply uh, tax laws in order to help get some tax deductions and also fund retirement for uh, the future of the employers um, for their teams. And so um, did that for quite some time. When my kids were born, um, quit working on that full time, but um, had gone from a volunteer on the education committee for the professional organization in that field to working part time for them remotely, which was great. Um, And at that time is really when we started investing in single family houses. Um, So started with some single families. My my kids first Halloween was actually spent at the title office closing for cash on a on a distressed house in Denton, Texas, that was going a result of a bankruptcy. So that was kind of an interesting first Halloween for them. Yeah. do they and remember then, it though? I mean, were they? No, they, they didn't remember. remember. Okay, they, okay. They, were, they were just under a year old. So okay, uh, got it. Not, got not it. a whole lot under, but a little bit under. Yeah. So, um, so they don't remember that, but but it's a good story. So yeah. Um. Anyway, when uh, then got into multifamily about ten and a half, almost eleven years ago now. Okay. Um, so when you say a distressed home, was this like post crash two thousand eight, where you where you started investing in single family, or? When no, was it was actually before that. These. Um, all of mine were purchased before everything truly crashed. Um, mm-hmm. Dallas hadn't seen the same bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas really hadn't seen the same bubble that a lot of the other areas of the country did. And so there hadn't been the same run up. And so there were still deals to be had. That there wasn't a huge change before and after 2008 in terms of what the property values were as much, um, much more so just in terms of the lending requirements. And yeah. so um, was very, very fortunate with the timing on my single family portfolio um, on each of these because I was you know, self-employed doing the consulting part-time. Um, we ended up paying cash for the properties and then refinancing them after the renovation was completed and we had final values. Okay. And so got the cash out of the seventh house, which was the last one we did three days before Countrywide shut down their cash out program. And that was yeah. the last last game in town at the time. So it was right nice. kind of before everything went 
sideways. So nice. So, so yeah, ba- basically, I mean, nobody knows when stuff like this is going to happen, but uh, your, your timing was extremely fortunate. It was very fortunate. It was very, very, very well, blessed in that regard. Yeah. Well, yeah. Congratulations on timing the market. You know, that's, that's amazing. But uh, yeah, my, the, the first house that I bought was 2007, but it was also in a Metro that was, you know, similar to Texas. It didn't have that run up. So it didn't have a substantial crash. The second house I bought was 2008 after the slide um, in San Diego, which it did have a significant drop in value and um, didn't quite time the bottom, but I think, I think we did fairly well with that anyway. But uh, yeah, that, that, that year right there. Wow. A lot of, a lot of weird stuff happening, but so let's, so I want to talk about the transition to multifamily. You said that that happened about 11 years ago. So, you know, math in public, you know, 2011, a couple of years after the crash. Mm-hmm. Um, so what prompted you to move from single family to multifamily? Um, really just the ability to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I looked at it, looked at trying to do some um, flips or stay with some of the rentals, figuring out those different pieces and decided that multifamily was really probably a good way to go to really scale up the organization um, to get so that I actually had full-time staff, had a manager on site, had a maintenance man on site so that all of those things were taken care of. Um, One of the great things about single family investing is that it doesn't take much time. Mm -hmm. And one of the horrible things about it is it doesn't take much time. And so you fill your life with other things and then it's always really inconvenient when somebody else's dishwasher breaks. Yeah. So, um, that would kind of really be the uh, one part of the impetus to, to get into multifamily. Um, also, for a while, it was really hard to get the loans. And right, kind of at that point in time, found a property that was an outstanding deal, had lots of different ways that we could make money with it. And um, kind of right at that time, we were also fortunate again in timing that um, a couple of lenders started opening up the ability to lend on distressed properties again, mm-hmm. kind of right there in that uh, summer of 2011. And so when we were able to purchase that property, mm-hmm. um, actually with some leverage on it, which is definitely helpful for yeah. the returns. So how, how big was your first multifamily? The first one was 77 units. Okay. Uh, that's pretty, pretty good size for the first price. And just, just humorous for a second, you know, how much did it cost, you know, 11 years ago? Do you oh remember? gosh, that one was like uh 1.3 million, I think when okay. we bought it. 77. Something, something like that. One, one, six. I, I'd have to look, I'd have to check notes. I don't remember exactly what the all in was versus the actual purchase price, but decent amount of renovation on that one. Uh, And definitely got things cleaned up. That was a, that was a really nice one. We got that turned around in 15 months and sold it for a very nice gain for our investors. Nice. Nice. And so, so you say for investors, I assume you did use a syndication model. We did use a syndication model and the very first one, there were just six um, passive investors, but Nice, uh, nice to keep it. Small. It's grown substantially in more recent offerings. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm 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 looking at your bio at the same time, and you know, I've, I've got a billion questions to to ask about that. But uh, when when you when you bought that, so so right now, um, you know, from from your bio, you've bought and sold over nine thousand units, um, which is a substantial amount. Um, when you bought that first property, you know, you you said you you kind of moved into multifamily to scale. Did you imagine, you know, nine, that 10 years later, you'd be saying 9,000 units? No, I, I had no idea that it would, it would grow the way that it has. Okay. Um, that's, that has been much more of a, um, making the best decisions I can each day and putting one foot in front of the other, just keep your head down and, and keep working on things much more so than any sort of a lofty goal of, I want to, you know, hit this many units or, or other sorts of things, just try yeah. to 
Yeah. There, there, there's a quote. I don't, I don't know who, who said this first, but uh, you know, most people overestimate how much they can do in a year, but underestimate how much they can do in like 10. Right. So, um, but yeah, nine, 9,000 units, you know, extreme. very true words, very, very true words. So, um, so let's, let's talk about this, the scaling process, you know, going, going from that one to many, you know, thousands of units. Um, what do you think were the most critical decisions looking back what were the most critical decisions in making that happen um i think a lot of it was just getting comfortable with it myself um so really as soon as you're kind of comfortable with what it is you set your own metrics and make sure that you actually follow and stick to what your metrics are for buying stuff and then you know really as long as you're doing good deals i've found that you can generally raise the the funds to be able to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a challenge to find deals. It's a challenge to find equity sometimes. And it kind of throughout the 10 years has kind of ebbed and flowed between those two as to which one's the, the harder one in that particular week. Um, but I think that's, that's a big thing is just make, make sure that you keep your eye on the deals, make sure that you're still be holding true to your own metrics, whatever those happen to be. And, and different people are going to have different metrics for what they're trying to accomplish for themselves and for their investors. Yeah. But um, you can make the spreadsheet say anything you want it to. So just be careful with all of the metrics that you're looking at, that you're not out further on the limb than, than you want to be. It's okay to walk away from some deals. It's really hard to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard when you've got that last look and they're like, well, if you just come up a little more and, and it's hard and it's... Um, you know, because a lot of the time it's it's very small percentages and stuff. But if you you have to have some sort of a place that you that you call it, or you yeah. you could end up millions over where you intend. Yeah, to you you got to draw the line somewhere. You got to have your criteria. Stick with your criteria. Otherwise, I think you're right. You can you can go really really high on stuff. And man, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe in the last two years, it's it's almost impossible to overpay with how how crazy the market's been recently. But I think in general, yeah, that's that's very very sound there. Um, so looking at uh, the the size your company, I mean, so you you also you know scaled a company along with your real estate investment. Um, what were your first hires, and you know what would you recommend for people who are also trying to scale? And I, I might be stealing some Adam's thunder because he told me he was he was going to be talking about uh, asking you questions about the same thing. But you know, what, what were your first hires? Um, sure. Well, so the fir- first hire was the manager and maintenance guy for the very first property. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing I outsourced was the day-to-day leasing and, you know, filing mm-hmm. evictions and whatnot and uh, finding somebody to fix the air conditioning when it broke. So those were kind of the very first pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, when we 1031 out of that into a 244 unit property, had to add some additional staff, a larger maintenance team, larger, larger office team. Mm-hmm. Um, really, it was when we added the other property that we bought about close to a year later is when we really started to add um, people that were a little bit more regional level. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard at that size to add them, but it is really helpful to have the extra expertise and Mm -hmm. extra set of hands to do things. Um, So I think that's been a a huge piece of it. Mm -hmm. And we are, we've always owned the management company since the very first property. Um, So that's been important to have all of that in in house for us. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the rest of the scaling the business, there's been, there's a whole lot of other factors to our business because sort of every time that we haven't been able to find vendors that can do things the way that we want them done at the price that we want them done, we've oftentimes uh, built another company to mm-hmm. to satisfy that need. And so we have um, a materials import and logistics supply company, got a, a graphic design and signage business, got mm-hmm. um, our interior crew of um, construction guys that do the renovations on the interiors of the apartments. And again, all of those things were sort of built out of 
I've need at some point in time, a couple, you know, several times in, in my career, we've had uh, hit a big growth patch. And we're like, well, can when we really scale the team big enough to, to take on this bigger, this bigger situation. And so we, you know, would try bringing in a GC and, and I know that there are great GCs out there. I just haven't personally been, uh, I'm fortunate in timing, but not so much in selection of contractors as far as interior renovations, evidently. Um, so it, it was always just something where, you know, a lot of time had passed and nothing was really all the way done. And so we've always just ended up kind of bringing stuff back in house in that regard. Um, yeah. So construction's pretty much just internal to us at this point in time, though we might scale that service mm-hmm. business at some point, but the materials and graphics design we do service, you know, hundreds of other customers um, wow. throughout Texas and throughout the country uh, for their logistics and um, signage and branding needs. Nice. Nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Now, a lot of people recommend um, having a third party manager when you start and, and you went the opposite direction. You know, why did you, why did you choose to manage it in house from the very beginning instead of getting a third party manager over the top? Um, well, probably the most precise uh, and honest answer I can give you on that one is um, that the business partner that I had at the time and I both had actual time to babysit the project quite a bit. And um, also really, even though it was a, a very, very small number, even just having that management fee was some income for our families. And so um, that was that was pretty crucial, too. And with the amount of single family experience that we had had and financial backgrounds, um, the bank let us do it. And so um I really think that was huge. It really enabled me so that, I mean, now, even though it's a very large organization, I do know where all the pieces are, how everything fits together. And so I think that was a fantastic um, kind of way to come into the business and, you know, third-party management. I know that there's some good ones out there again, but it's, nobody's going to quite care about your business the way that you do. That's so true. So, um, I'm I'm glad I got to start that way, but yes, it probably was more to make the $500 a month in management fees than it was for most other things at that point in time. You know, it worked for you and it it sounds like it's worked extremely well. You know, it's, and and you mentioned a couple of things I'd like to highlight on. I mean, number one, you, you had the time to do it. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this show are, you know, working full time and, you know, trying to find apartments and deals to get out of their job and, in that case, I think third-party management is absolutely required. And then the second thing you said is the bank let you do it. And that's that's also a key consideration. Um, I mean, every every time we've applied for a loan, we've had to submit information about who's managing the asset, you know, the property management. Um, and we, we actually had a bank come back to us. You talk about good property managers and bad property managers. There's one property manager that was really struggling with, with a lot of our assets. And um, we ended up cutting ties with them. But uh, about a month later, a couple of people I know that were using the same management company said that their bank was forcing them to go somewhere else. So anyway, you're wow. a lot of, lot of, a lot of things there that you said that I just, just want to highlight, you know, you have to find a good property manager. Um, a lot of times, just like you said, um, nobody cares about your company like you do. So, you know, if you're able to bring it in house, you know, get the right help to do it, but bring it in house. And, and a lot of times cutting out that middleman helps. That's, that's what we're finding right now. So um, anyway, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your motivation for all of this. What, what would you say your big burning why is? Um, I guess probably the big burning why started out really with my kids. I have uh, 15 year old twins that are on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I, when they were very little, um, I realized, first of all, that probably my general calling was not necessarily to be therapy mom 
even as it was, but that our family definitely did not have the resources at that point in time for me to be therapy mom to one while paying somebody else to watch the other one so that, they, you know, the house didn't get burned down and nobody got hurt or fell down the stairs or those sorts of things. And so um, that was that was definitely some of it is, you know, hey, if, if we're going to do this and do this right and do the best thing that we can for the boys, better go figure out how to how to make some money. So um, that was definitely where it started from. Um, I, you know, I've, I've had uh, a close friend along the way and well, several people have asked me this, but it's one in particular that always asked me like, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. And I just always try to explain like enough really passed somewhere in the middle of the night. There were mm-hmm. already so many diff- new things in the works and other things by the time that there was any level of sort of financial comfort and security. Mm-hmm. Um, that you start to find a bigger why for what you can do and the good that you can do for the world and the difference that you can make. And so um, one of my personal goals is to uh, help a hundred people become millionaires. Nice. Um, so I think I'm a little over, a little over halfway there at this point in time with the people that have invested with me over the past 10 years. And so um, that's been really cool to, to kind of watch that happen and, and see some of those lives change. And then we also um, recently started a nonprofit for families impacted by autism. So we've got a ranch that we're doing some development on Mm -hmm. um, to have a kind of safe place for families to come spend time together, get to know one another. And um, just where all of the parents understand that the unexpected is likely to happen and that you just kind of roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. I I love it. I mean, I'm I'm still still trying to get to that point where we we have enough if that makes sense for the rest of our lives. But uh, um, I, I love the the charitable arm. The the you know you're you're looking at giving back. You're looking at lifting other people as well. You know it's it's something that um, I, I've thought about a lot. You know I, I have a goal to help a lot of people exit their W twos. You know and and start uh, basically get their time back is my goal. So similar similar vein, slightly different. Uh, ways of articulating it, but, uh, and I, and I guess that's really the thing is, is there is still a lot of my time that I sacrifice. So you have to find some of that bigger why to, to keep going, um, and to keep doing it. And so that, that is, you know, there, there are definitely times that I'm, I'm not trading time for money, but time for impact in the, in the greater sense of things. Yeah. Return on impact. Yeah. Okay. So, if, if you would, please, let's let's talk about one of the, the deals you've done and two different d- different directions so we can go. You can talk about something specific or you can talk about um, more what your philosophy is on on purchasing right now and and uh, what, what a sample deal would look like. Um, sure. So I guess uh, one of one of the more interesting ones was actually the second property that we did. It's the mm-hmm. one that we 1031 into after that 77 unit. And it was 244 units. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 50% occupied when we bought it. Mm. We got, we had a very nice price per door on that. Um, there was one building where there had been a water leak on the third floor that had created some issues with a four-letter word mm-hmm. throughout most of one side of the building. Mm-hmm. And um, so got to got to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the, the quality of the residents at that time at that property was just absolutely fantastic. Both boilers had gone out about six months prior to our mm-hmm. purchase for 30 days. So you can imagine the, the quality of the people that stuck it out through that. So it's the um, people who had no other options is what you exactly. were left with. Yes. Precisely. So, so we ended up having to take it down to about 32% occupied before we ever actually started leasing it back up. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely had to rescreen everybody, but that was sort of um, having that much all at once is what sort of launched us into the materials business, which is really kind of a, 
full piece of it got to take the first trip over to China because um, we knew we needed 200,000 square feet of flooring. And so um, that was kind of started all of that piece nice. of the business. And so that's been something that's really carried us forward and, and done a lot of cool things for what we've been able to do on renovations. I mean, to answer the broader question in terms yeah. of kind of what we look for, um, oftentimes they, generally because we've gotten to where we do interior renovations well, and that's been sort of our specialty, um, definitely look for something that needs interior renovations. I've found that I can often make the numbers work whether somebody else has already done a lot of exterior heavy lift or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, that that's pretty um, standard. But then also, uh, really looking for for managers that manage entirely for occupancy. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been an incredible, while the properties have gotten a whole lot more expensive, so have rents um, yeah. in terms of a general market survey. And so there's definitely some opportunity that can be gleaned by um, finding finding the properties where the management or ownership has not been paying attention to what's been going on with the rents in those markets. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would imagine, um, I mean, you didn't say that you kind of hinted at this, but, you know, with your logistics company, with the, the way you're getting supplies and all that, I, I would imagine that you guys can probably do renovations cheaper and faster than a lot of your competitors. Yes. Yeah. I, w- I would definitely say that's true. I mean, labor has been tough for everybody in the past year, I think. So um, can't say that it's always at, at, at lightning speed, but yes, definitely very cost effective because we do pass through those cost savings on the materials and any that there are on labor um, back into the partnership returns. So that's that really does enable us sometimes to also be able to stretch a bit because mm-hmm. we can get materials less expensively and, and have those logistics wise in those processes. Let's see, last question for you before we, we bring Adam on, what's next? Um, next, we are in search of some properties. We are also starting um, our first ground up development. So we have two different properties under contract that we are starting the de- um, development of some townhome communities on. And so uh, I think that's really going to be exciting. At the moment, we've kind of funded with internal funds, the purchase of the land, a lot of the architectural engineering um, probably cover the majority of the horizontal, Mm -hmm. and then actually take in investments and um, put debt on at the time that we start to go vertical. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a way to increase returns for investors and also just, you know, reduce the amount of loan fees and other things that we have to pay by doing that a little bit later in the cycle. And then we're always looking for additional um, multifamily existing properties to buy. And so we've got, we've got several things. They're, they're running spreadsheets every day. And we're talking through different deals and, you know, have a couple of things that we might offer on here soon. Yeah. And, and going back to the development, I mean, you say you're, you're bringing in debt and investors later on in the process that also reduces the risk for the investors as well, which is for sure kind of a big deal right now. A lot of people are are looking at the, the risks involved with things, maybe a little more so than they did a year or two ago, but uh um, anyway, well, thank, thanks for sharing your story. We're, we're going to shift gears a little bit and bring Adam on. So Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you guys? I'm doing well. So, um, so let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm based here in Dallas, Fort Worth as well as Kim, uh, live in the, uh, the Dallas side of the Metroplex and Richardson specifically, um, grew up here, been here pretty much my whole life. And, uh, 
I uh, started very similar to Kim in single family, uh, bought my first rental property, a house in 2004 and mm -hmm. uh, started in single family. I kind of had a, you know, a construction background in terms of just um, doing work on those rental properties that I was buying myself and, and kind of learned and cut my teeth that way. Um, I went through that same you know, market downturn in 2008, you know, nine, 10 here um, that, that everybody else did and fortunately made it through there okay. I still have some of those properties, but I did have to sell a couple just to, just to get by. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I learned, uh, learned a lot. And that was, that's a valuable lesson that I sort of carry with me today when we're looking at properties and looking at risk and, and all those things. So I took a, a long break, got married, had kids, and then came back, um, to real estate in a about 2016. So I was working a W-2 job um, throughout that whole time. And the reason why I bought the first property was basically just to just to reduce taxes. You know, I was I was making pretty good money in sales, living in an apartment. I'm going, I'm paying all these taxes. I'm getting killed. So I bought a rental property mm -hmm. and then I figured out, you know, with depreciation and, and those losses, how I could sort of uh, increase those those uh, those losses and decrease those taxes. So I continue to go down that path. Yep. Um, but in 2016, I, I came back to it. I said, okay, my my goal and my passion has always been to work for myself, um, not work for somebody else. I was tired of working for a boss. And uh, at the time, my wife uh, was working as well. And we said, okay, let's let's get this going. Let's let's figure out how to get into real estate full time and um, and make the move. And so we did that. And we started building a business where we flip houses, wholesale a lot of houses, buy some rental properties, sort of everything single family. And uh, we still run that business today, but sort of the longer term vision was always to get into multifamily. Even from 2004 and five, I'd always, I always knew that, like Kim said, scaling a business was a lot easier in multifamily if you could figure it out. I just couldn't figure it out. It took me, you know, kind of 20 years to figure out that I could actually do it and, and sort of have that confidence to, to really go out there and buy, you know, a significant property. And so, um, we, we ran the, the single family business. It was growing, growing, growing. And, you know, today we, we still run that. I've got seven employees that work for us. Um, my partner Lance and I are, you know, we're involved, but you know, that we've got others that, that handle about 85% of the workload there. And, uh, we're going to do about 75 transactions this year. Um, so that's good. But our main focus is multifamily, and that's that's where we're at today. We just closed on our first property in Dallas um, three weeks ago. It's 127 units in Dallas, and uh, and we know that's the future for us. So um, that's where we're at today. All right. Well, congratulations on that uh, that first purchase. That's that's kind of like the key that unlocks a lot of doors when it comes to multifamily. But uh, um, you know, that said, you know, what's what's your why? What's what's the reason why you're doing all of that? Yeah, it's like Kim. It has changed in the last uh, even the last year. So my my goal a year ago was to uh, basically, like I mentioned, not work for somebody else to have you know, freedom and control over our time and our, our income. And I have that now. Uh, I was able to, to allow my wife to work in the business as well and, and not go back to working full time. She used to work for Fossil here in Richmond. 
Jefferson. She got laid off and uh, we were we were fortunate enough to just bring her into the business full time so she didn't have to go back and get a job. Um, my partner, Lance, his wife's the same way. So she was able to quit her job and come into our business full time. And then I was able to do the same thing about 10 months ago. I was able to walk away from the W-2 job officially and um, and come into the business full time. And so we just have one left. My partner, Lance, is the next one to to retire from his W-2, which he'll do this year. Nice. And um, so that was our that was our first goal, our first why. And, you know, it's definitely shifted in the last year to um, having a little more um, having a little more you know, not freedom with time, but just control over the things that we do and, and the ability to, um, you know, not just pay all of our bills, but just be be very secure in what we do. So I want to I want to mitigate all the risks that we have with single family. And I see that with multifamily. So, yeah. you know, if we've got three properties and they're producing whatever amount per month that pays all the bills, then we really, we don't have to stress about money whatsoever. And single family business is still, you know, even though it's pretty consistent, I always have that fear that, you know, tomorrow the leads could shut down Mm -hmm. and then what do we do? And so we, we, we want to have those income producing properties just so that we are, we are secure and and we minimize, minimize that risk. Then the other part of it is, is just impacting, you know, not only not only our family or my kids, but just the community in general. We talk a lot about this in our multifamily presentations. You know, I want my kids to see us grow a business that they can, you know, decide one day whether they want to be in it or not. But they they'll remember our real estate business. They won't remember that we work W-2 jobs. And that's what I want them to know. I want them to understand what we do and why we do it. And um, and I want them to see, you know, that that mom and dad are impacting other people and the and the properties that they put out there and manage and and buy and sell. And and um, and then we also want to give, you know, the communities that we work in nice places to live. And we're we're basically focused on two markets, Dallas, Fort Worth and Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, we're very, very passionate, like Kim, about, you know, turning these properties around and, and providing a, a nice, safe place to live for people and, um, and sort of, you know, not, not even getting credit for it, but just, you know, giving people a nice place to live where they'll walk up to you and say, Hey, you know, this place used to be a dump. Now we're really proud to live here. We appreciate what you guys have done here. That's important to us. Yeah. And so just creating more impact in our communities is a huge thing for us. And then lastly, you know, I, I would do this if I wasn't getting paid for it. I'm just passionate about the journey. I, you know, if if I had enough money in the bank where I didn't have to take another dollar from it, this is what I would be doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I tell a lot of people this, that I'm I'm not the fastest. You know, I won't I won't win any races, but I can promise you that that I will be doing this long after most people go to bed and long after most people are, are doing something else because, you know, I'm just passionate about the journey and I love doing this every day. And it's, it, it doesn't feel like work to me. This is what I enjoy doing. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for sharing all that, Adam. Very much appreciate it. Um, now we come to my favorite part of the show where I say, Adam, we got Kim on the line. What do you want to ask her? Absolutely, Kim. Thank you so much for for being on this. This is Absolutely. exciting for us. Um, Congratulations you know, on your first property. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's been a whirlwind. And, and um, you know, our my partner and I, we the first property, we, we had this property come to us and um, it was an expensive property and our raise was $5.8 million. And we were very confident that we could get this done. First raise, never done it before. Yeah, we, we'll do that. Yeah, well, we, we did get it done, but it was uh, <laughs> literally down to the hour that we had the last bit of money in before we closed. So um, definitely a lot tougher than we expected. We were a lot more confident than we probably should have been. Uh, luckily, we, we made one very important change and that we brought in a couple groups to help us raise the money um, with, with enough time left to actually make it happen. So my first question for you is, you know, do you guys prefer in, in a, I'm kind of asking these as if you would advise me, um, do you prefer to, um, bring in other groups to help you sort of, you know, raise money, um, and, and do other tasks associated with owning and managing a property, or do you prefer to build an internal team with employees? Um, well, really all, all of ours is internal team with employees. Um, so, you know, I, I will tell you, it gets so much easier to raise the capital when, once you have the track record, um, mm. that makes a big difference. Obviously your huge track record and single family and enabled you to get, I mean, 5.8 is a, a really big first raise. My, I think ours was only like $700,000. So, um, you know, times they are changing in terms of uh, what it costs to buy a small property anymore. But, um, but I think, so our, we've been very, very fortunate. Our network has really just kind of grown organically um, used to be part of a real estate investment club. So a lot of our initial investment investors came from there. And then after um, we got kind of bigger than, than was a good fit for that group. Um, we're fortunate to be able to take all of our investor list with us. And then um, at that point, there were no more restrictions on who we couldn't, couldn't take. And so we got a lot of referrals from, you know, all of their cousins, their aunt, their next door neighbor, you know, the guy three cubes down at work kind of thing. So um we've been very fortunate in that regard to be able to kind of grow the network organically. And I think that's, it's worked well for us. I mean, we definitely have had some conversations with larger institutional players. Um, so I think we, we have those backups available if we get to a place where we need them, but um, I really do enjoy the difference that it makes to, to the individual investors. And so that's yeah. definitely my preference when I can do it. Yeah, we, we've done the same, but I, I talked to somebody last week and I'll just, just share a different way of going about it. But uh, um, and this 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 particular person has like a $60 million property in their contract right now. And he basically told me that they're getting out of the capital raising game because they want to focus more time on finding deals. And so they're going into the bringing in, you know, co-GPs, you know, they, they, they want people to set up funds and bring money through funds. But I think part of it depends on what you're good at. You know, um, some people are good at capital raising. Some people are good at building organizations that can do everything. Um, you know, if if you're really good at finding deals, you know, maybe you, you bring other people in. So um, I, I think ideally you you do you do both. You, you're going to make more money if you do it all together. But uh, um, there's there, there's a lot to say about what you like to do yourself too. Right. And yeah, obviously and I, I have a big, I have a big team that helps make that happen. Yeah. So that's, that, that is huge. It is, it is, I would have lost my mind long, long ago if I was still trying to find properties and raise the money myself while they were under contract and, you know, on board. So I, I'm very, uh, very fortunate to have a, a fantastic team that does yeah. a ton of the heavy lifting on all that. 
Yeah. And the company I'm with there, there's five, five of us, you know, and so we, we can each focus on our own, you know, specific area. And so we do it internally as well. We've done all of our capital races internally too, but you know, once again, there's five of us to share the load. So, you know, a couple of us can focus on raising capital. A couple of us can focus on, you know, the deals. Got it. Well, you, can you just describe what I'm doing today? So I'm doing CapEx, looking at a new deal, working on the management uh, <laughs> you know, meeting that we're planning, all, all those things is what I'm doing today. That, that kind of brings me to my next question is what would you recommend being the first, you know, in-house employee hired that we should look at? Um, how are you handling management? Third party for now. Okay. So, I mean, if you get to a place where you want to get away from third party, I think definitely like regional manager type person to get that, to get that piece. And then okay. also it depends on, what it, what part of it do you love to do? What part of it does your business partner like to do? What part of your wives love to do? Because um, that makes a big difference too. I mean, really, you want your first kind of key hire piece to be the piece that um, is where you need expertise or don't want to, where it's not your strongest area. Um, it, it's always a little hard. It's just recently that I've gotten to really kind of replace myself in some of the areas where I, are my strengths and are the things that I love doing. Um, but I was very fortunate almost seven years ago. Um, my, she's now my COO, but started as uh, director of operations and has, has helped me immensely. And so the things that I hated about the business is HR for one thing. I don't like <laughs> the, you know, the paperwork and the counselings and whatever else it's easy to talk to people, but actually written warnings and all those kind of things were never my, never my fan. Um, I love the financials. She loves the marketing. And so it's been an incredible person to have on my team. Um, she's got tons and tons of the management experience, having grown up in the business for, you know, from leasing agent on up. And then, you know, whereas complementing my experience with the finance side, with the lending, with, um, you know, really the deal analysis and the spreadsheets to do all of that. And so I think that's a big thing is to find, um, again, I, was there was a you know additional incentive to get somebody else in the middle there so that my phone didn't ring at 3 a.m all the time um if something happened but i think that's that's the big thing is figure out kind of where the the gaps are the pieces that you don't want to do um I actually got an was at a coaching session um entrepreneurial coaching session last week and so um in asana we use asana as kind of a to-do global to-do list system and whatever but he was actually saying that one of the things that he did years ago is created a fictitious employee of a name it was he used the name of a guy he didn't like in high school. And so whenever he's doing some task and doesn't like it, he puts it on that list so that as you go to high, you know, his whole team knows, hey, any, any of you, if you think any of these things are interesting or something you want to learn or want to do, feel free to take them. And otherwise, the next time that they make a hire, they've got that list of, hey, we should hire somebody that can do these things. And so um, you know, even if it's on a much smaller scale, that might be a good thing for you and your business partner and your wives to to create a list somewhere that every time one of you is doing something you don't like, toss it on that list. And maybe one of the other three will be like, Oh, I would love to do that. Or maybe you find out exactly who it is that you want to hire first in terms of those pieces. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love that idea. I just wrote that down. That's a, that's a really cool way to do it. I, I liked that one. Cause I, I can never remember what it is that I want to hand off. If you just like, give me a blank piece of paper, but yeah, as, as the day goes along, if I just added a little to that list every time, I think, I think I could probably, uh, do a much better job of delegation than I sometimes remember to do. Yeah. So just in general, you know, do you guys, when you, when you're talking about employees, you know, do they typically just get paid, you know, salary, mm -hmm. uh, 
something very, very common or do they sometimes participate in the deals as compensation? How do you guys kind of handle that? Just just a rule of thumb, not specifically, obviously. It it certainly started out as as general W-2 compensation, but as people have been with me longer and as we've grown larger and had to take on some, you know, so when you're when you're starting to get to this stage, we, uh, you know, we're adding some people that are coming from big corporate jobs. There's not necessarily at our scale and size the easy ability to pay, you know, some of the salaries to compete with an Invesco, you know, trained analyst and those sorts of things. And so then, yes, we have done some, some creative stuff in back end that really, that makes a difference for them. And that really gets um, fantastic buy-in. So a little bit of both. Yeah. Okay. yeah, We've only got a couple of employees. Um, the first thing I outsourced was the podcast editing, you know, because it just takes a long time. And then I outsourced the podcast scheduling, but uh um, we, we typically pay by hour, um, 10, nine, well, by the job. So for podcast, podcast scheduling, I pay by the hour, uh, podcast editing, it's, it's per episode, um, inside our company, we do have a couple of employees and one of the employees we brought in with a, you know, we, we give her a, a small sliver of, of GP on, on everything that she helps us close on. So, um, Fantastic. yeah, it's a small sliver and it, it definitely, definitely can add up over time. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. And Kim, you kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but, you know, if you were advising us, you know, on growing our, our uh, LP investor base, you know, we, we ran through our, our network pretty quick the first time around. And uh, we kind of looked at each other and we go, okay, we raised like 600,000. We only need 5.2 million to go (laughs) and our our network's tapped out. So what do we do now? (laughs) Uh, So if you were gonna just give us, you know, a couple nuggets of of growing that investor uh, network on our own so that we don't have to reach out to other co-GPs in the future as much, what would be your advice there? Well, I think one of the things is we both need to tell Brian, thank you for having us on here, because um, yes. I've always seen a, a big um, there's always some jump every time one of the podcasts airs. There's always starts to be some jump in terms of organic reach outs. Um, I have not. I know it's been on our to do list. If it's done, I have not yet heard results of it, but I'll have to check that with our investor services team. We just finished a 70 million dollar raise last month. So um, they've been a little busy. So I'm not sure if the analysis is wow. done, but we're trying to look at kind of what the actual conversion is. We know we get a lot of people onto the list, but in terms of, you know, what, how many of those actually turn into investors? Um, I, I don't know that right off the top of my head, but that but that is a good way to just kind of get your name out there. Um, you know, network with other people for sure. And yeah. sometimes you have to do some co-GP or, or find, um, you know, pay to get into one of the groups that allows you to do that sort of a thing. Uh, they all have their own set of, their own set of rules and their own set of hoops to jump through. But, um, but those are all things to look at, but I think definitely that's a big one. Um, just, you know, networking with people being in, in a place, um, you know, any, you can do some social media stuff as well in terms of alternative investments and those sorts of pieces. The the marketing angle again is not my is not my personal strong suit. I'm I'm a little less comfortable doing like real push marketing for stuff. But um, like I said, the podcasts have always worked yeah pretty well to me to get a little bit of extra. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've I've done a lot of promotion both through this podcast um, and and a lot through social media as well. You know, just being able to put yourself out there. And I was. I was terrified at first. I mean, if you'd asked me three years ago if I would would have such a public role as I have right now, and I'm I'm not like this isn't a huge podcast by listenership by any means, but uh, um, 
yeah, I, I would have, I wouldn't have believed you, but the benefits that have come from a podcast, from posting, you know, several times a week on LinkedIn, on Instagram, um, I get people who reach out to me, want to invest. And the first thing they say when they come on the phone, on a phone or a Zoom call with me is, I feel like I know you already from the podcast or from your social media or from whatever. So for me, that has by far been the thing that's helped the most to bring um, investors into the group. And out of, out of the five of us in the company, I've, I've brought in 60% of the investors, you know, so, and it, it's, it's been podcasts, it's been social media and that's, that's, what's worked for me. Um, a lot of people do do it differently. Um, but there's many different ways to do it. And Kim had a, I mean, she's raised a ton more money than I have probably by like a couple of zeros on the back end, but, uh, you know, she did it a completely different way. So bottom line, there's, there's lots of ways to get there, but we, we are about out of time. So I'm going to ask one last question for each of you. Um, Kim, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Um, so sure. If uh, investors are um, welcome to email and invest at expppg.com. Um, and Amanda will, Amanda and Jamira are our investor services team. And so they will um, get you all the information you need, get questions answered. And then also um, for anybody that has properties that they do own and want some information on some of the supply chain and logistics that we can provide to materials business, need some signage. Um, the website for that is existmf.com. And, um, or you can feel free to email the invest also, and we can refer you over to the appropriate person on that side of the business that can certainly, uh, we will go through and walk your units, get counts of everything that you need, give you entire kit pricing so that it really simplifies logistics and reduces the number of trips to Home Depot. Awesome. And is, is that service regional, no. geographical or, or nationwide? Um, really nationwide. We, I mean, the the bulk of our business is definitely in the DFW area. We do make trips every week down to Houston and San Antonio, um, sometimes up to Oklahoma, but we have had some great success sometimes too. Out of state, we don't have to charge sales tax since we're only based in Texas. And so oftentimes the shipping cost is offset by the sales tax savings. So, okay. um, so we, we, so we have done set many other states too, but I would say that the bulk is in Texas, but there's lots of opportunities for, for some arbitrage on that as well. All right. Sounds good. So if anybody's interested, we're going to put links uh, to that, that website and the email address she cited earlier in the show notes. So definitely, you know, reach out to her um, or her team in this case. We, we, we have been looking at that site as recommended by our property manager. So we've been looking at the exist site for materials. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool. I'm very, You'll, you'll have to come join us at whiskey Wednesday and you can see all about it. I'll do that. Yeah, you have to tell me what that is. All right. Just a, it's a customer appreciation and new business, like new people that meet us get to come to the warehouse. We have one Wednesday a month, um, you know, have some drinks and some snacks, but wander around, get to see all through the warehouse, see the products, see the equipment that, you know, manufactures cabinet doors and prints the monument signs and puts your name on a Yeti. So nice. it's an adventure. Awesome. Okay. Next time I'm in Dallas. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, all right, Adam, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, you can go to our website. We're apartmentbuyingguys.com. We're also on all the social media, you know, Instagram, Facebook, just at Mm apartmentbuyingguys.com. You can find us there. 
All right. Sounds good. And same thing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for anybody interested. Love the name, by the way. Very, very descriptive. Exactly what you guys do. So um, that said, thanks to both of you for coming on the show today. Very much appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already, and then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.